Good morning, Covenant Life Church. I'm Bob Walker. I'm one of the pastors at CLC, and it's my privilege to begin our Advent series of sermons on the women who are listed in Christ's genealogy. Matthew begins his gospel, his account of Jesus Christ, by giving a summary of the genealogy of Jesus. Why is that genealogy even here? Why are these four women in particular listed in the genealogy? We want to answer that question this morning, of course. But then, what are we going to do with the sordid story of Judah and Tamar? What place does a Canaanite woman, prostitution, incest, and other unnamed egregious sins that leads to the death of two sons, what place does that have in the lineage of Christ? So let's start by just saying what is the purpose of this genealogy and Tamar's place in it. The purpose of this genealogy and Tamar's place in it and the purpose of this sermon is to make us understand that God will accomplish his purposes no matter what. So that, two things. One, that we will trust in God. And two, we'll act on that trust. Let me repeat that. The purpose of this passage, this sermon, is to make us understand that God will accomplish his purposes no matter what for a purpose. So that... We will trust in God, and we will act on that trust. So in the story of Tamar, we're going to see a young lady who's been unfairly abandoned by her own family. Her father-in-law, Judah, sends her back to her own people when he should have fulfilled his responsibility to provide her both a home and a husband. She seeks to take matters into her own hands to obtain what is rightfully hers by secretly engaging in incestuous prostitution with Judah. And then Judah condemns her sin and tries to have her executed. But she's saved when she's able to prove to Judah that he sinned against her. And we're going to open our Advent series of sermons with this story. I had this picture in my mind that some of you on Christmas morning or Christmas Eve saying, let's talk about the Christmas story in a new way and turning to Genesis 38. That might not happen. It, it never happened in my house. But uh, let's pray as we begin our study of Tamar and her place in Christ's lineage. He Heavenly Father, we come to you. We come to you humble. Uh, we come to you seeking. And we ask you to teach us from our word. And we come to you confidently because you are the God of truth. You give us knowledge. You give us wisdom. And then you also give us your spirit and you make it possible for us to act upon the words and the commands and the things that you teach us. And so I pray that you would teach us this morning. I pray that you would move us to act and I pray that we would act. I pray that, that some would hear this story and would put their faith in Jesus Christ, that they would trust in Christ to save them. And we pray that you would do that for your glory and through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the purpose of the genealogy in Tamar's place to make us understand that God's going to accomplish his pur purposes no matter what. So that we're, we will trust him and we'll act on that trust. We will trust God. This speaks of our attitude, our heart's conviction, our faith. 
And this passage teaches us to hope in that. We can act on this trust. This passage, this story, this genealogy should make a difference in our lives. We should be different people doing different things because of this passage. How? Maybe just a couple, couple of things to start with. Are you Tamar? Have you been unfairly treated? Have you been sinned against? Are you in a circumstance where you're suffering? Even though, at least in this one instance, you are innocent. You know what's right. You know what's due you. But you're not getting what you reasonably deserve in this circumstance. You're hurting. And it might even be crushing you. This story from this genealogy will teach you to hope in the right person. To hope in God. And then it will teach you to trust in the God in whom you have hoped. Are you Judah? Have you sinned? Have you messed up so bad that the consequences of your sin are more than you can bear? And it's crushing you. It might even be humiliating. Does the thought of your sin being revealed bring fear? Does the shame you feel humble you to despair? Have you hurt someone? Have you sinned against them? This story will give you hope. Eternal, lasting hope. Hope in the one reliable enough to bear the weight of the hopes of the world. This story brings Christmas hope. And this week, I have prayed for you. I just remember being here last week and looking around and seeing some faces and seeing some hurt on faces, or at least what I imagined was hurt, and maybe even hearing some of your stories. And that's driven me to prayer for you in this passage. And I've found hope here, and I know you can find hope here, and I pray and have prayed that you will. We're going to examine this genealogy and Tamar's place in it in three sections. So there's three major sections, three major points. Point one, we're going to start with the genealogy and answer the question, why start with a genealogy? If you remember the old King James Version Bible... If you're my age, you probably remember that. This section was full of a word that said begat. This person begat the next person. And the question is, why all these begats? What purpose do they serve? What do we really learn from them? So why start with a genealogy? That's the first point. Number two, we're going to examine Tamar's story. We're going to turn back to Genesis 38. And we're going to examine the whole dirty, sordid tale. Parents... You may have a lot of explaining to do with your kids over the lunch table. I will tell you, my kids have grown and left the house. So uh, good luck to the rest of you. <laughs> part two is Tamar's story. And then in part three, you know, part one, we started with what do we learn from the genealogy? Part two, what difference does Tamar's place make in Christ's genealogy? And if you want one word to describe part three, that could be the application. Or if you want two words, the so what. What difference does it make to me? What is God teaching me? What is the Holy Spirit teaching me? And it's teaching us quite a bit. So why start with the genealogy? 
One of my favorite authors, a Hebrew scholar, Lois Verberg, uh, she said uh, she was in in a Hebrew class in Israel. She met a translator who had come to brush up on his language skills from the Philippines. He was working on translating the Bible in a, from a Philippine diet, from Hebrew into a Philippine uh, dialect. And according to this person, the preliminary version of Matthew that, that the translators had made had left out the genealogy we just read. What they were thinking was they wanted to share the gospel as quickly as possible. So the translators hadn't included that genealogical list thinking it wasn't important. It seems silly to begin with this long, distracting, irrelevant list of names. When they completed the translation, more than one person asked, you mean Jesus was a real person? The first readers had, had assumed that the Gospels were just fables, tales told about a magical, fictional hero. In their way of thinking, a family without a family line, Jesus did not even exist. Ancestry was critical to them, and it was critical to the Bible writers, and it was critical to the people who first read the Bible. In many cultures of the world, a family line is essential to have any identity at all. Over the history of the world, most people have understood the biblical emphasis on family much more than we do today. I think I've shared this story once before even. But family was the framework upon which society was built. Traditional cultures throughout history have structured themselves in terms of extended family relationships. As Western individuals, we find it difficult to appreciate this. But this would have been obvious to the original biblical audience. So one of Matthew's major purposes in his gospel and especially in the first couple of chapters, is to establish Jesus' right to be king. He has a right to the kingship of Israel. He's part of the royal line of David. He comes from the recognized royal line of the nation of Israel. Maybe just an illustration from 2 Samuel 7. This is what God said through the prophet Nathan to David and the people of Israel. When your days are complete... And you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be a father to him, and he'll be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I'll correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son to men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him. As a As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. God was telling David that his house, his name, his kingdom was going to be established. It was going to carry on forever, and it is in Jesus Christ. Genealogies in the Bible... And in ancient times were not mere lists. They told a story. They made a point. One point is that there was an expectation that sons would take on the characteristics of, the, of their ancestors in some cases. You know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Jesus made that point in Matthew 5. Verse 44 says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45 so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. 
For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. There's continuity between David and Jesus. We think in terms of individuals, but in ancient times, in a lot of the world today, long-standing family connections are hugely important. You know, there's a story, and probably even happening today, two men meet on the road in Somalia, and they introduce themselves to one another by their name, and they start describing who they are. And that description is probably saying, I am this person of this family, and I'm in this family of this clan in this place. And they, they start sharing that information, and it's important because the, their relationship is not going to be determined how these two individuals encounter one another and in any bonds of friendship uh, between them in many cases it's going to be how are our families how are our clans related are we enemies are we friends and i I believe the people who are reading this genealogy through history understand that too the human being the singular distinct person isn't as important he only matters as part of a certain bloodline, and that bloodline is being established for us in Scripture. What was enduring was not so much the individual, but the family. And the people thoroughly invested themselves in that larger identity of their family. You can hear this in Scripture like Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David, for David, a righteous branch of his family. He will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. I'm going to let Justin tell us more about genealogies in the coming weeks. But let me close this section with this. Matthew is teaching us something by including Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba in Christ's heritage. She's not there by accident. So let's discover that purpose in the text. So please turn with me to Genesis 38. Before I start... I want you to remember what Tim Keller said. There is always a wholesome purpose for recording acts of depravity in Scripture. There is a wholesome purpose for this sordid story in Scripture. And with that in mind, let's read verse 1. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited, visited a certain Adolamite whose name was Hera. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her as a wife and had relations with her. And she conceived and gave birth to a, to a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a son, and she named him Onan. She gave birth to yet another son and named him Shelah. It was at Chazib that she gave birth to him. So we're seeing right at the beginning... We're reading about Judah, one of the sons of Jacob. We're in Genesis. They're living in the land of Israel. Why are we reading about Judah at this point in Genesis? There's a couple of reasons. First, this story about Judah really contrasts with the story of Joseph. Judah, in the previous chapter, have captured their brother Joseph and have sold him into slavery over jealousy of their father's favor. Judah is sinning, first against Joseph, then against Tamar. 
Joseph is responding honorably while being sinned against by both Judah and by Potiphar's wife in the next chapter. Second, we see that Moses, the writer of Genesis, is describing the line which will eventually culminate in the coming of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew recounts that genealogy looking back, but Moses is describing how it came to be in the first place. So Judas sold his brother. He lied to his father about it. And then in verse 1 of our passage, he departed from his brothers and visited a Canaanite friend. So a town near Adullam, an area where David later had hid in a cave, he meets his friend Hera, and then he marries a daughter of Shua. We never know the name of Judah's wife. And he has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And all this happened about 15 to 20 miles to the west of Bethlehem, still in the hill country. And this is a weird story. And there's some problems that we need to face in it. First, why is Judah marrying a Canaanite? Isaac and Jacob, or a servant in Isaac's place, and Jacob traveled far to find a wife from among their own people. This is what Genesis 24.3 says. Abraham, I'll start in verse 2. Abraham said to a servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh, and I'll make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. Later in Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 7, God cautions his people, the people of Israel, not to marry into the tribes of the land, which included the Canaanites. They were not to be led astray by joining the local people, by joining the local culture, by joining in local worship. So let's keep reading. Verse 6. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord. We don't know what that evil was, but it was so significant that the Lord took his life. Verse 8, then Judah said to Onan, his second son, have relations with your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up a child for your brother. Now Onan knew that the child would not be his. So when he had relations with his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground so that he would not give a child to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. So he, God, took his life also. Judah had married his oldest son, Ur, to a Canaanite named Tamar. Ur was evil. The Lord took his life. So in accordance with the laws and customs of the time, Judah gave his daughter-in-law, Tamar, to his next son, Onan. This was in accordance with something called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage doesn't uh, have anything to do with the tribe of Levi uh, it's, as far as where its name came, came, comes from. Leveret marriage, from, it comes from a Latin word, lever, which means husband's brother. It was a common requirement among clannish tribes of the time. And it was later included by God through Moses in the laws given to Israel in Deuteronomy 25. The best illustration in the Bible of leveret marriage is in the book of Ruth. Remember, it was vitally important to them to carry on the family name, to carry on their clan, their family, and that lineage. If that eldest son died, 
It was up to the next qualified man in that family to provide an heir, not for himself, but for the eldest son who died. In this case, that heir would receive all the rights and privileges of Ur's son. He would be the one who the name of the family would be carried on through. So you can see a conflict of interest with the second son, Onan. If Onan provides that heir for Ur and Tamar, then Onan is supplanted as the heir. He no longer has the privileges of being that next in line. The rights and status of the heir go to the son that he would have with Tamar for Ur. So Onan sins. He refuses to impregnate Tamar, and God took his life for that sin. So what's next? Son number three. As you can imagine, Judah is beginning to have some reservations about marrying sons of his to Tamar, even though it's the right thing to do. So what does he do? Verse 11. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went, left Judah's home, went and lived in her father's house. So he sends Tamar back to her father and promises that his third son Shelah will provide the heir with her. This is a promise that Judah doesn't keep. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. Now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning had ended, Judah went up to his sheep shears at Timnah. He and his friend Hira, Hira the Adullamite. This is maybe just a, a side. This is a lesson for us to keep good friends. Friends who influence you to do right. Friends who do not help you to do evil. Hira the Adullamite was not that for Judah. So he and his friend Hira the Adullamite. And Tamar was told, behold, your father-in-law is going to Timnah. Another town uh, south, I'm, uh, north of, uh, of where they were living near Adullam. To shear a sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil. And wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up, and she had not been given to him as a wife. See, Scripture is full of instructions for God's people to take special care of the helpless. And widows were the most helpless. One example of dozens in Psalm, in Scripture is in Psalm 146, verse 9, where it says, The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow but he thwarts the way of the wicked. So let's go on. Verse 15. When Judah saw her, he assumed she was a prostitute. For she had covered her face. This apparently was the custom in that time. Especially times uh, that were set aside for harvest or for the shearing of sheep. That, that men would use temple prostitutes, religious prostitutes in a way to exchange money and gain favor from the gods. And apparently even women could veil themselves, engage in this prostitution for a time as, as an as a act of devotion towards their gods. I would also say 
that Judah is duped by a garment. In the chapter beforehand, he's fooling his father with Joseph's garment. In this chapter, he is being duped by a garment. You can just see the depravity that, that's happening in this story. And it's, it, it, it teaches us that it's important for us to choose friends, to choose husbands and wives and mates among those who are committed to God and who share our faith. But that's an aside. So let's go back to the story. Verse 16. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me have relations with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Tamar's whole plan, you think about this, and we're going to learn about Judah. Her whole plan depended on her knowledge of her father-in-law's depravity. She could count on Judah doing the wrong thing, the evil thing. And she could make her plans based on that. And we go on. It says, and she said, what will you give me that you may have relations with me? And she, he said, therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. That was the payment. She then said, will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal, your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. Those were things that were personal to Judah. It would be like one of us handing over our wallet. It has our identity. It has our personal information. You can look at the things in our wallet, in my wallet, and you know it belongs to me. I could look in yours, and I know that wallet belongs to you. Those are the things that are handed over as a pledge. So he gave them to her and had relations with her, and she conceived by him. Then she got up and departed removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. Contrast this story with Ruth and Boaz. Ruth presented herself to Boaz. Nothing sinful happened. Tamar is engaging in sinful behavior. No doubt about it. But Moses does not condemn her in this passage. She's included in the genealogy of King David and Jesus Christ. And Moses is focusing on Judah's sin and Tamar's helplessness. What else is here? Tamar's disguise is reminiscent of Rebecca's disguise for Jacob in Genesis 27. I mean, we we can see three generations of deceit here. Jacob deceived Isaac with a goat skin to receive the blessing of the oldest. Judah deceived Jacob with Joseph's bloody cloak, and now he's deceived by a veil. This is horrible. I mean, what good can come of this? Somebody reading Matthew's genealogy and going back in their Hebrew Bible and they read this story and they have to be thinking, what good can come of this? So we go on. Judah sent his friend Hera back with a goat to redeem his pledged items, but of course he's not going to find her. You can notice in verse 23 that Judah did not call off the search to avoid the shame of his behavior, but instead to just avoid being a laughing stock. His shamelessness was immense. He was living like the people of the land, but he did not want to be laughed at. So let's pick up the story in verse 24. It's about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has prostituted herself. And behold, she's also pregnant by prostitution. Then Judah said, bring her out and have her burned. That sounds harsh. I'm told In Hebrew, it's much more harsh. This is literally two words in Hebrew. It's take, burn. 
is a very terse statement. And it was while she was being brought out that she sent word to her father-in-law saying, I'm pregnant by the man to whom these things belong. She also said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. And Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not have relations with her again. The tables had been turned. Judah is humbled. He repents. He bears the fruit of repentance. He can't say that she's righteous, but he can definitely say she is more righteous than I. And what was the lasting result in Judah's life? Judah wanted an heir. He got two. Let's read verse 27. It came about at that time she was giving birth that behold, there were twins in her womb. Three of Jacob's sons, so Judah's father, three of Jacob's sons, Judah's older brothers were disqualified to be in the lineage of Christ. The three older sons of Jacob and Leah. Reuben was disqualified in Genesis 35, 22 when he laid with his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi were disqualified when they deceived and slaughtered an entire Hivite village. Judah is the one. The promised Messiah comes through him. After this, this evil man, this sinful man, this man who is willing to have somebody burned for, for a sin that he was complicit in, he's changed. He's totally changed. Before this chapter, he sold the favored son, Joseph, into slavery. Later, he offers his own life to save the life of that favored son, Benjamin. Here's what Jacob was able to how Jacob was able to bless Judah at the end of his life in Genesis 49. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's the story. That's the Christmas story. This change of life. This this. God saving people in helpless circumstances. God saving people who aren't looking to be saved. God saving people who are totally lost. So part three, our application, the so what portion of our sermon this morning. What difference does this story make to you? First, I'm going to tell you one thing. This story makes no sense at all without Jesus Christ. This week, I read through a Jewish Bible study on this passage, as well as an LDS Bible study, and the conclusions they drew were just problematic. Here's one. This is from a Jewish Bible study teaching Jewish women about this passage. Tamar's traits of assertiveness in action, willingness to be unconventional, and deep loyalty to family are the very qualities that distinguish their descendant, David. That's not what we're to get out of this passage. Because of Christ, this story is redeemed. Because of Christ, Judah is a changed man. He is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. God saved him. This story points to Christ. 
Because of this story, we have King David, a man after Christ's own heart. Because of this story, it pleased God to bring Jesus Christ. Because of this story and that lineage, God saved me. If you're saved, it's through this line that God saved you. God redeems this story. We can know, we can have faith as we read this, just like Romans 15.4 says, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of scriptures, what? We might have hope. How does Tamar's story give us hope? At the beginning, I said the purpose of this story and this sermon is to make us understand that God's going to accomplish his purposes no matter what. And, or so that, we'll trust God and we'll act on that trust. So, three applications. We'll go with three applications. Know who your God is and what he will do. Your God is the God who accomplishes his purposes. He accomplishes what he sets out to do. God's accomplishment of his purposes does not depend on and is not even hindered by our sin. In his mercy and grace, he even accomplishes his purposes in our sin. This is one of the great themes of Genesis. Turn quickly over to Genesis chapter 50. In verse 20, so we're at the very end of Genesis. And Joseph is talking to his brothers. Their father is dead. The brothers may be wondering, eh, has Joseph really forgiven me? And Joseph teaches. He says, as for you, you know what you did to me? You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. And then he explains even more. In order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. That family was preserved alive. Our heritage, our spiritual family was preserved alive. And today we are preserved alive in this story. God will accomplish his purposes. He's pleased to work through his people. If his people do evil and do not walk in righteousness, God still accomplishes what he sets out to do. In that, we might suffer. We might be disciplined, but God will ultimately accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And at the end, we will see that it is good and right and we'll worship him for it. And we're doing that this morning. God taught us that same lesson uh, in the story of Samson. Samson exasperated his parents by asking for a wife from among the Philistines. God did not ordain Samson's sinful actions. He did not command them but he sovereignly used them to accomplish his purposes. This is what Judges 14.4 says. However, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. For us, what does Romans 8.28 say? And we know, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. It'd be good to know what his purpose is. So I'll tell you that God, he so loved the world 
that he gave his only son and that whoever believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. God will save those who believe. Believe what? Believe in Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, born of a man in a human line, born in a lowly manger, but proven to be king of his people by right, proven to be king of his people by his actions and his, his lineage as the only begotten son of God in the line of David, in the line of Judah and Tamar. He was the qualified kinsman who was able to bring us into God's family. We are invited to be joint heirs with him. He lived perfectly. He died, not for anything he did, but for our sins, our sins, sins as evil and as dirty and as sordid, but maybe not quite as public as Judas' sin. He died for our sins, and those sins, they're paid in full. And he proved it by rising again. And his rising again is as sure a historical fact as his lineage and his life. He reigns in glory and graciously saves us. We will reign with him, and you can't earn it. You're already not good enough. One single sin disqualifies you. But God took the initiative to save you. So turn from your sin. Repent. Trust in Christ. That's the God you are called to know. So know your God to hope. And we have hope. This genealogy, this gospel story, this Christmas teaches us that we have hope. All was lost with Judah. He had disqualified brothers. He was in sin. He's disobedient. He was evil. God redeemed him. God changed him. He's not the same man in chapters 39 through 50 that he was before. And you go back to the genealogy. Matthew bookends this gospel in hope. The hope that we get from this genealogy. Genealogy that has prostitution and incest and sinful disobedience, complete moral failures. But God through this line saves the world. And he saved me there's hope. We're as lost as the people in the line of Christ, but we hope in faith because God saves. We confidently experience salvation. Our future is secure if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. God changes us in our faith, and he gives us real hope, and he changes us the same way he changed Judah. We have hope at the end of Matthew because God tells us why we're here, and why are we here? To make disciples. And what's the promise that accompanies that commission? He is with us, even to the end of the age. Halfway through Genesis 38, Tamar was an abandoned, childless widow, sinfully pursuing her rights. At the end of the chapter, she's the honored mother of twins. In Matthew, she is one of the four women prior to Mary, specifically called out in Christ's lineage. She was redeemed. Judah was an evil, lecherous, unfaithful man, unfaithful to his family, unfaithful to his God, but he returned to his God. If you're Tamar, if you're Judah, God is teaching you hope in this story, undeserved, repentant hope. So why are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, 
and Bathsheba listed in the genealogy and not Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, any of the queens of the, of the house of Israel? It's so that we might have hope. Hope in a God who works. So, it was know your God because he accomplishes what he sets out to do. That's one. Hope in what he says he's doing. That's number two. And then take action based on that hope. That's number three. You can rely on it. That last application is simply trust him. Trust God. Really rely on who he is and what he says. Trust what God says. If you're Judah, repent. Turn away from that sin. Turn to God. Confess your sin. Be forgiven and be cleansed. That's what God says. If you belong to Christ, repent, confess, be forgiven, and be cleansed. Are you Tamar? You don't need to take circumstances into your own hands. You can trust God. He will take care of you. He is your father. He loves you. He hasn't forgotten you. He sent his son for you. You won't slip through his fingers because there is hope in the Lord. So know him, hope in him, trust in him. And I think if we do these things together, that will be a good start to our Christmas. Let's pray.